Well, good morning, everybody. Did somebody say resurrection? resurrection. He is risen. He is risen. He's risen. He is risen. Really like you mean at this time. He is risen. He is risen Please stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received in which also you stand, through which you are also being saved. If you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain, for I handed on to you as first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as one untimely board, he appeared also to me, brothers and sisters, and the Lord, all flesh is grass. The beauty of that grass is like the flower of a field of grass withers, the flower fades, but this, the word of our Lord, our God, will endure." Amen? Amen. Amen. Have a seat. You see, the problem is that dead people tend to stay dead. Um, Just yesterday, or just this morning, I just heard that this weekend, the last known person to be born in the 19th century passed away. 117-year-old woman in Italy. And let's say this right out of the gate so that none here would be confused as to what we're actually talking about. We are not talking about resuscitation. We're not talking about a guy who simply needed to be woken up. We don't sing, Christ the Lord is woken up from a really, really deep sleep today. The first thing to say is that he was dead. Dead as a doornail for you Dickens fans out there. The second thing to say is that this is not a ghost story. Think of the best ghost stories that you love. They tend to be about people who died and then came back to earth as some sort of spirit. Uh, According to legend, uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost, does anybody know how Casper the Friendly Ghost died? He got pneumonia because he went out sledding too much and didn't didn't cover up. He died... But then he came back, right, as a friendly ghost. Now Jesus, while he was often very friendly, he was not a ghost. He was raised in flesh and blood. We call this resurrection. See, here in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is beginning a very important point. In fact, he's going to go all in on this one. He's saying, listen, if Jesus isn't raised for the dead, then we should all pack it up and go home. I mean, I love an Easter ham as much as the next guy. And who doesn't love one of those microwave peep explosions in the microwave? But, but seriously, we're gathered here today to talk about this guy who claimed to be the incarnate God, um, who was dead and now isn't. All of Christianity hangs on that one. If that's not true, then our faith is in vain. Who cares? 
what some Jewish revolutionary 2,000 years ago that he said some stuff and he ticked off the wrong people, and yeah, he died at the hands of a powerful empire. He wasn't the first, you know. The Jews were oppressed, or an oppressed people under the thumb of Caesar. Many revolutionaries came along. They tried to, to rally the people, and then they suffered the consequences. Why should Jesus be any different? Unless he was actually raised from the dead. You see, if he was actually raised from the dead, and he was actually God incarnate, then that's the reason to break out the champagne. The Apostle Paul says in Romans, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is free from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life, the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in God, in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus wants followers, not just converts, not just believers. Conversion is great, and a change in your belief system is is important. We talk about that a lot, but, but faith, faith isn't just about believing in Jesus. It's about believing him. It's about following him. It's about imitating him to the point of death. As Jason said a few days ago, the bad news is you're going to die. The mortality rate is still hovering around 100%. The good news is that you have a choice regarding the manner of your death. And you can decide here and now to die to everything that isn't Jesus. Take the person who walked through these doors, kill them, and then live your life for the one who has victory over death itself. We're gathered here today, my friends, to talk about resurrection. And interestingly, it's the, exactly the kind of thing that you'd expect from a God like ours. All throughout nature, we see death giving way to life. October eventually gives way to April. Jesus once said, very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. No doubt you see this principle every day in your own life. For, for you to say yes to one really good thing, you must say no to another thing. The no gives way to the yes. Maybe the thing you're saying no to is easy, maybe it's hard, uh, maybe it's good, maybe it's not good, but it's definitely not best. There's a common theme throughout the entire Christian narrative that says the good or the easy is the enemy of the best. Good Friday is a story of God's no. Easter is a story of God's yes. Easter is a unique story of God demanding nothing short of the best for his people and his creation. Easter is a story where this whole thing got started. In our house right now, we're playing a video game, my son James and I. We're playing a video game called The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Do we have any fans of this game in here? 
Man, this is such a cool game. It is a medieval fantasy game, kind of in the vein of the Lord of the Rings, for those with ears to hear. Um, The setting of this game, bear with me, the setting of this game is the kingdom of Hyrule, which has been taken over a century earlier by a bad guy called Calamity Ganon. Ganon has not only taken over Hyrule Castle, but he's infected the land with corruption and malice. Oh, okay. Um, He's infected the land with his malice, and your job as the hero is to destroy this corruption, reclaim Hyrule for good, and ultimately destroy Calamity Ganon. Now, one of the key elements in the game has to do with these things called divine beasts, right? Um, These huge mechanical uh, beasts that were originally created to kind of keep evil at bay, but instead they've been corrupted, they've been infected by Ganon's corruption. Um, The beasts are kind of like they're in bondage, right? They're in slavery um, to Ganon, to to evil. Um, So your job is to find ways into the divine beast, destroy this corruption from the inside out. Some of you see where I'm going with this. Destroy this corruption from the inside out, and then you can aid the divine beast into being the thing that it was created to be and help destroy evil. One of the more mysterious aspects of the game seems to be that the troubling aspect of Calamity uh, Ganon didn't just begin like a century earlier, it actually began more like 10,000 years earlier, and there had been like these ongoing cycles of good and evil for as long as anyone can tell. What the people of Hyrule long for is a total destruction, right? A total destruction of Calamity Ganon, a total destruction of victory over evil, and a full restoration of their kingdom. Now I realize that there's a few folks in here who like are playing this game right now. And I have three questions for you. Number one, how much of Hyrule is affected either directly or indirectly by Ganon's corruption? All of it. Even though there's many good characters in the story, there's good guys, how many characters can be the hero? Just one. Just one. And the second, third thing is, What's that? It's kind of two. All right, stick with me. Yeah, right, spoiler. I haven't gotten to the end of the game yet, so maybe it's just two. Anyway, I've only played as one character. Um, Where does the game begin? Where does the whole game begin? Where do you start the game? No. What is this tomb called? The Shrine of the Resurrection. James got the answer right. Okay, so, all right. So, yeah, I'm sorry about the hero thing. I knew I was gonna, needed to ask Mr. Matthew about that before the sermon. Um, but, okay, so now I'm going to tell you another story. And pay attention to think if you can hear some similarities. Once upon a time, God created all things. He created the stars in the sky and the vast reaches of the universe. He created the earth, the place that we call home. He created mountains and seas and forests and deserts and insects and grizzly bears. And finally, he created human beings like you and I. Everything that is, God created. After he created all of this, he called it something. What did he call it? He called it good. That's right. That's really important. You you see, he called it good because good was dynamic. Good was ongoing. The created order wasn't just something that was complete, like having been created. 
No, this was a thing that, that life led to death, which gave way to life, and there was this ongoing circle of life that just continues to this day. You can, you can see it now for yourselves. So all you need to do is look out the window. When God created human beings, He created them in His image. This means that in a way, you look like God. He designed it that way. It's right there in your Bible, Genesis 1.27. After He created humans, He put them in charge. He gave them dominion, which basically means that they were to be good stewards of the resources that God had provided them. He wanted, to take, he wanted people to take good care of His very good creation and to do so according to His rules. After all, God was God, and His people were His people. And that's going to be really important later on. But for now, please note that this created order was indeed very good. The individual parts of the, uh, were good as God went along and created it. And then he finished the whole thing and he called it very good. But then, then came a problem. Because corruption entered the picture. Because unlike the corruption caused by Ganon in The Legend of Zelda, this corruption happened because of something that we call sin. Sin literally means to, to miss the mark. There was a way that God had ordered the world that was very good, and somehow human beings allowed in corruption through disobedience. It started out slow, just, just, just a little lie here and there. But before long, people were, they were hurting each other. And soon that corruption had spread all over God's very good creation. And this sin, it continues to this day, you can see it for yourself. All you have to do is, is turn on the news. I know what you might be thinking. Well, if God is such a great creator, why did he allow the corruption to spread? I'm still working on that one myself. But, but I think that there's a clue in God's solution to the problem. You see, he didn't just wave a magic wand. He didn't just want to make everything go back to normal. No, he had something best in mind. Remember, there's that theme throughout the entire Bible that says the enemy of the easy is the enemy of the best. So instead of waving a magic wand, God began a rescue mission to save the world, and that rescue mission had a very specific name. It's called Israel. The Bible stories that you may remember from Sunday school are all part of the story of Israel, God's rescue mission for the world. The stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and Moses and the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston and the people wandering through the wilderness and Jonah and Josh and the Wall and King David and Daniel in the Lion's Den and Jonah and the Whale. All, all of those stories point in one particular direction because they're the story of the people of Israel, God's rescue mission for the world. The reason we learn these stories in Sunday school is because all of them point in that direction. God had promised Israel that they would be His chosen people, the people who were blessed not to the exclusion of others, but rather for the benefit of others. thing was, during this time, the Greco-Roman world grew more and more powerful, and Israel seemed smaller and smaller. And for a while, it seemed like all hope was lost, that, that somebody was going to need to rescue the rescue mission until one day a child was born out of the people of Israel who would change the world. Jesus grew. He began to attract followers. And the central premise of Jesus' teaching was that God's kingdom was now 
at hand. It was within your grasp. When Jesus announced the kingdom, he was announcing that God's rule and reign could be followed now. He said that all of life comes down to two things, loving other people and loving God. Jesus said all of the law and the prophets, all of it hang on those two things. The people who began to follow Jesus and learn about this kingdom were given hope beyond imagination. Jesus performed miracles and he could physically heal people, but it also seemed like he had authority. Authority over something else. There was one particular instance where a few men attempted to to help their, um, their paralyzed friend get near to Jesus so that he could heal them. And so the man couldn't walk, so his friends put him on this stretcher, and they went to see Jesus. Now, by this point, Jesus had attracted huge crowds, and the men carrying their paralyzed friends, they, they couldn't get near to Jesus. And so what did they do? They, they climbed up on the roof and lowered their friend down through a hole in the ceiling. And you picture this guy lying on the ground in front of Jesus, and everybody gets quiet, because they want to see what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus looks up, and the text says he saw their faith. Not only the faith of the paralyzed man, but the faith of his friends. And Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now, because we're told the man had faith, it's possible that he really, truly did know that his sins needed to be forgiven. It's possible that the man knew that even though he was paralyzed, the real problem was that corruption of his own sin. But before the paralyzed man had a chance to say anything, these Pharisees, these religious leaders started to mumble. This is in Luke 5, we'll start in verse 21. Then the scribes and the Pharisee began to question Who is this who is speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their questionings, he answered them, Why do you raise such questions in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who is paralyzed, I say to you, stand up and take your bed and go home. Immediately he stood up before them, took what he had been lying on, and went to his home, glorifying God. And amazement seized all of them. And they were glorified God. And they were filled with awe, saying, we've seen some strange things today. We see that every day. So you pay attention to what Jesus is doing here. Not only is he dealing with sin and dealing with that corruption, he also restored a body. It's true that none but God can forgive sins, but the story of Easter is more than you being saved from your sins. And it's certainly more than you being able to go to heaven when you die. The story of the gospel, this thing that is of first importance, is the truth that God himself took on flesh in order to destroy corruption, evil, and even death itself from the inside Through the cross, he claimed victory over darkness. Only through sacrificial death could a victory like that be achieved. Who possibly could be worthy enough a sacrifice for that? The corruption had affected everything, and it needed to be dealt with from the inside out. 
Only God himself was worthy enough to pay that price. And he did it by taking on flesh and dying on the cross for our sins. Only Jesus could be the hero of this story. But the story doesn't end there because on the third day, Jesus was raised. He had gone through death and out the other side. First he forgave sins, and then he restores the body. He says, stand up and walk. First he takes care of the corruption, and then he starts a new creation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first sign of a new creation. It's true, sin, corruption, evil, it's all still around. Even for Jesus' followers, it's still around. And we stand between the battle's decisive victory and the ultimate finale. It's so easy for us to forget that the battle, the battle's been won. Still, Jesus tells us, stand up and walk. Walk towards new creation. Walk towards grace. Walk towards love and joy and peace. Walk towards kindness. In Christ's resurrection power, not only can we stand up for things, we can stand against all kinds of other things. We can stand up against violence and oppression. We can stand up against poverty and thirst. We can stand up against addiction and lies. In the light of the resurrection, we're free to say no to corruption so that we can say yes to new creation. We are free to stand up and walk in the light of resurrection And we were never meant to do it alone. May new hope be a resurrection-shaped church. But remember, resurrection is not possible without crucifixion. For in the new creation, there is no life without death. While I hope that your actual death is many years in the future, my greater hope is that you would decide here and now that you will die to self and that you will live the rest of your years as a follower of Jesus Christ. First John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're going to take communion now. Before we do, I beg you, take a moment, confess those sins and, and then come to the Lord's table. You are free. You're free to live a life without corruption. Now our communion table at New Hope is an open table to all those who call upon the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you do not worship Jesus as King, you should not feel obligated to participate. The bread is unleavened, the red is wine, and the white is grape juice. And um, First though, would you please stand and join as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again 
in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.